Hey everybody, this is So Heidi, and you're listening to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. We all know that the fashion industry is brutally competitive and it takes loads of hard work to get ahead. The problem is that everyone's secretive and tight-lipped about their ways. After working as a designer and educator for over a decade, I wanted to help break down those barriers and bring you valuable knowledge from industry experts, and this show is exactly where you'll find that. Whether you're trying to break into the fashion world, make yourself more marketable, launch your own label, or become a successful freelancer, we'll help you get ahead in the cutthroat fashion industry. Welcome to another episode of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. And this story of this shoe brand, they started out as a flip-flop brand, and their success and what they've been able to grow to over the last seven years is phenomenal. A husband and wife team kickstarted this business using their savings and living on nothing to figure out how to make this possible. Seven years later, they are selling in Nordstrom's and Neiman's and doing partnerships with brands like J. Crew and Peter Millar. Their growth and trajectory has been phenomenal. And Lila, the co-founder of Hari Mari, the shoe brand, is here chatting with me and she shares so many great insights, really doesn't hold back on all the lessons they've learned, the things they've done that did work from finding their factory and getting production going to how they actually figured out who their customer was and what their product needed to be to make sure that it was a right fit for the market, all the way through to selling, how she kickstarted getting everything into boutiques around the United States um, and how they built their direct-to-consumer online business. A lot of this stuff was absolutely bootstrapped. They just figured out how to do it. They did it on a tight budget and they made it grow. So many great insights that no matter where you are with your fashion journey, with your fashion brand, there is so much to take away from my interview with Lila. Now, before we hop in, quick reminder that SFD, Successful Fashion Designer, is way more than just a podcast. I have tons of templates, tutorials, resources, all sorts of valuable things to help you get ahead in your fashion career, and they're all absolutely free. So here's what I want to do. I want to make sure that you get access to these, and I put together a special packet of all of the best stuff for you, and I want to get it to you right now. So hit pause on the episode for 20 seconds head on over to soheidi.com slash email. It's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I.com slash email. Give me your information and I will send you everything that you need to get ahead in your fashion career. You're going to love all these free resources. Now, if you're not really into the email thing, I get that. I also hang out on Instagram, which you can catch me over there at soheidi. Again, S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I. And before we jump into the interview, one last thing. If you do enjoy the successful fashion designer podcast a review on apple podcasts on itunes really really goes so far so if you have literally it takes 20 seconds to do um just scroll down if you're listening on apple podcasts and leave a review it means so much to me and to the show and it really helps new listeners find and discover this valuable content that i know from all the reviews you guys have left that there's not a lot of stuff out there like this and so think about how excited you are to hear this podcast and by you writing a review helps other people find and get these valuable insights that we share here on the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. All right, so now let's jump into the podcast interview with Lila Stewart to hear all about how she and her husband built their shoe brand, Hari Mari, from literally nothing all the way up to the company that it is today. 
Welcome, Lila, to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. Uh, why don't you start out by telling everybody who you are and what you do in the fashion industry? Well, thank you, Heidi, so much for having me. I'm so pumped to be here. Um, my name is Lila Stewart, and I am the co-founder of Harimari Shoes. Uh, we started as a flip-flop brand, but we've evolved into shoes, and we're now about an eight-year-old company. Okay, amazing. So I did a little poking around on your site, and I, I know a little bit of your backstory. Um, it, it sounds like it came from a pretty cool beginning, and you guys have grown a tremendous amount over the years. So take us back to the first sort of, what did this look like at the very beginning, eight years ago? Where did your idea come from? How did you kickstart everything that you're doing now? Well, we have a little bit of a unique background in that it began in Jakarta, Indonesia, actually. Um, my husband and I, and his name is Jeremy, um, born and raised in Dallas, and we're working in Dallas back in 2007, but had a really cool opportunity to move to Jakarta. Um, we sold our cars and put what we owned in storage. A, um, a former general of the Indonesian Army wanted to run for president and hired my husband um, and his then business partner to run his presidential campaign. So obviously a, a cool opportunity that you don't want to say no to. Never been and um, was excited to go. I had to Google it at first to figure out where it was on the map, which is kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. And it was amazing. We were there for three years. Jeremy had to work on a lot of projects um, to get his client's name out there, one of which was producing a documentary film specifically about malnutrition. Sadly, the education just isn't there or wasn't 10 years ago when we were living there about how to feed your children. While I was there, I got on the board for the American Women's Association, and I spent my time helping kids in orphanages in and around the, the capital and the countryside. And so, as you can imagine, you know, Indonesia is a developing country. It's third world. And seeing the kind of poverty that we did, I mean, families live on less than a dollar a day. 80% of the population lives below the poverty line. There's not a lot of access to health care. Um, needless to say, so it was it was an amazing and rewarding experience, but it was tough. So we knew that when we moved back that we wanted to continue to help kids. We wanted to keep it here in the United States. So it was a little bit backwards in that we had our philanthropy decided before the actual business. We decided <laughs> that, um, unfortunately, pediatric cancer is the most fatal disease of children in the United States, more so than all childhood diseases combined. So that was where we were going to put our philanthropic efforts, and the idea to start with producing flip-flops was, came, came pretty quickly shortly thereafter in that we'd worn out the brand that we'd worn for decades and went shopping for flip-flops when we moved back and, and noticed, Heidi, that literally the exact same flip-flops that were hanging on the walls in 2007, those same flip-flops were still hanging on the wall in 2010. Same black, and bra same black and brown, same brand, same status quo. And so we felt like we, if we could come to market and focus on premium, comfort, durability, minimal break-in periods, um, add some color to the mix, but then give back, kind of based upon our experiences of living abroad, that we might be on to something. And so the name Hari in the Indonesian language means of the sun, Mari in Latin means of the sea, so kind of a nod to our time in Indo, but and relating to flip-flops in a way as well. So that's that's our story and how we got into it. Wow, it's such a cool beginning. And 
Like, what, other than seeing this gap in the market of, like, okay, the same flip-flops are on the shelf three years later, there's nothing new, we feel like there's an opportunity here, did you have any inkling to go towards something fashion? Did you, had you have any background in this? Like, it, or did it just really come about because it happened to be this thing in fashion that you saw a need for? Well, it was, it was a bunch of things. It was us wanting to you know, my husband wanting to get as far away from politics as he could. And so (laughs) flip-flops kind of, kind of serves that purpose. But also, I mean, the days of suits are dwindling, right? Casual wear is on the rise and flip-flops are certainly a a large recipient of that. So it wasn't just like, oh, we'd worn out our flip-flops. Let's make a better one. I mean, we did R&D for two years. And in that R&D process, we learned that it's a $24 billion business globally. Wow. 14 of that is here in the U S so it's a big business. And if you look at all the the major brands, they are all headquartered in California and they've been around for decades and they're great brands, but they all focus on surf and beach in terms of their marketing and how they present themselves. And there's certainly a market for that. And back in the seventies and when the flip flop culture kind of began, um, that was hot, but now everyone's wearing flip-flops. And, and what we learned was the true growth story in our R&D process of where the growth of flip-flop sales were coming from was here in Dallas where we are and in middle America and places where surfing may or may not resonate with people. I, I, I don't surf. I've never surfed. And so we wanted to also come to market and do it a little bit differently and focus on lifestyle and and the and, and the way that people are actually wearing flip flops and have a different a little bit of a different approach to it as well. Yeah, I I literally live in flip flops in the summer, and I live in Denver, Colorado, in the middle of the country. Ironically, right now I'm wearing a sweatshirt that says "Surf California." I'm, <laughs> this is terribly ironic. Honestly, I'm from California, um, and a little bit of my heart still still kind of stays there. But yeah, I see what you're saying. I mean, it is. It, no matter where you are, it doesn't matter if it's it's the surf and sand thing. People are wearing these on their feet. And I think, like you said, we're seeing, you know, our culture kind of move away from the suit and tie industry. But a lot of people are yeah. more working for themselves more. Things are becoming more relaxed and casual. Um, so but it sounds like you guys did not have any background specifically oh. in fashion or anything like that. Oh, my gosh. I forgot to answer that piece. Yeah, Absolutely not. <laughs> our families thought we were crazy. Um, I, I'd kind of dabbled in retail when I, be home, when I was home for holidays and college. But other than that, that was the extent of okay. our retail experience, manufacturing experience. I mean, I was in the music business and, and sales and marketing prior, and Jeremy was a political consultant. So okay. this was so far outside of our wheelhouse yeah. that it, people for sure thought we were crazy because when we started it, I was pregnant. And we just bought a home and we were saying goodbye to both of us to paychecks because we were all in on Hari Mari. So no, we had, we had no idea what we were doing in the beginning. Okay. So what did the two years of R and D look like? Like what exactly did you guys do during that time? It was a lot of market research. So obviously, you know, checking out what other brands are doing, what, what did that, what does that look like? What does that feel like going to stores, buying pairs, cutting them up, test driving all of them. Um, We also did focus groups, which for us was the most important aspect of what we did from an R and D standpoint. So we went to, we're fortunate here in Dallas to have tons of local universities. So we handed out flyers and told people that they would have free pizza and beer if they would come give us 30 minutes of their time. And a friend of ours moderated. And from those focus groups was the, the data that we got was so powerful, which was several things. It was First and foremost, there is a common loathing for the toe piece on flip-flops, which is the piece <laughs> that goes in between your first and second toe. Yeah. 
And if people don't wear them, that's usually why they don't wear them. And so at that point, a light went off and we designed and filed patent for a memory foam toe post, which sounds silly at the time, but fast forward seven years later, we got the patent. We are now the only flip-flop on the market that has it. And it is a huge differentiator between us and existing brands and even up-and-coming flip-flop brands. So that was one key, one key takeaway. And the other was we were curious and asking the consumer about why are there only black and brown flip-flops for men? Is that market-driven or is that just a decision made at the you know top-tier level at these brands? And what we found was that it wasn't market excuse me, that it, it wasn't market driven and that men are open to buying flip-flops with color. It has to be done in the right way, but there weren't any flip-flop brands producing color for men, even at a premium level. Yeah. And so those were, there were, there were so many takeaways, but that the focus group piece of it was so such an important catalyst for our brand. So it was research, R and D, um, and shopping, cutting up the flip-flops, designing new ones, just a lot of kind of strategizing as to how we were going to do it differently as well. Yeah. And I love that like the most valuable takeaway from this was the, the specific, specifically, um, I mean, a lot of it sounds like it was insanely valuable, but the customer research component and you made it so simple and it sounds like pretty cheap for yourself. So, like we just bought pizza and beer. We hand out flyers at colleges and we got people to come and we just chatted with them and asked them, you know, what do you love? What do you hate? What do you want to see? And, and yeah. like you said, you had a moderator, but it's just kind of digging into their needs and their wants and like, where are things not being fulfilled for them in this specific category? Yeah. Yeah. Love it. So bootstrappy. That's, that's awesome. Um, okay. So you said you started like designing, how were you doing this? Were you just like sketching on, on paper or did you hire some people in the industry to kind of hash this out a little bit further or like, what did that really look like for you? So at first it was primarily my husband. Um, we have a little bit of role reversal in that, uh, he is the creative eye and he has, he's just more so the designer. I'll put it that way. So really, he really was just sketching it out with, with, in the beginning with probably crayons, you know? (laughs) Um, and in terms of how do we elevate it to get it to the level that it needed to be to take it to a factory, just did some networking, went online, found a consultant that used to work for Teva and design Teva's products, found him on LinkedIn, connected with him, hired him to help us initially get them basically CAD drawings into a format that they needed to be in before we took them to the factory. And that was it. Wow. Initially at least. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Of course. Um, so where did you find a factory? Did you look overseas? Did you look here in the States? Did you just do a bunch of searching and like find someone you thought would be a good match or I know that's always a big struggle for people. It is. And we wanted so badly to find a manufacturer here in the U S to make them. And they just don't exist. And then we looked in Mexico and it it just wasn't feasible. So we went where, you know, the majority of where the world's shoe population is produced, which was China. And I feel very fortunate because we had lived in Southeast Asia. I felt like that gave us a leg up in how to understand how to do business in Southeast Asia. And so we were lucky in that regard. Um, We originally went to where Tommy Bahama and Quicksilver, not Quicksilver, Tommy Bahama and Sunoke were produced. Um, and the, 
the factory that where we wanted to go to originally denied us. They kind of laughed at us. They're like, ha ha ha, find us, <laughs> come back with some orders or, yeah, you know, you yeah. guys are way too small. And then, so we went with a kind of plan B and the quality wasn't where it was, and, but we got really fortunate because the guys that handle production for Quicksilver actually took a pair of Harimaris to the factory where we wanted to be in. And they said, mimic this toe piece. And so sure enough, the factory owner called us and said, oh, ha ha, we have an opening. And so that's how we got to where we are from a production standpoint, because I feel like we're in the best factory in China for footwear. Yeah. Um, but it, fortunately, you can find some of that stuff, so much of that stuff online. Um, and there's, you know, there, there, are, there are groups you can join to help you find places to go. Um, I can't speak to places in the U.S. that do produce apparel, because I know apparel is a lot easier to have made in the U.S., but yep. in terms of footwear, it just doesn't exist. Yeah. No, I, I've not really heard of anything either. Um, okay, so that was just digging and digging and then talking to people, finding the right contacts, and then you kind of just fell into this perfect factory. Yeah. Um, so can I ask, and you don't need to like share numbers, or, or you can if you'd like to, but you don't have to, but um, where were you getting, I mean, you said you, you, you stopped getting a paycheck, you spent two years in R&D, and then yeah. you go into production, like, you have to pay money to live, you know, there's just general overhead in life, and then obviously going into production and hiring this designer, like, those are all expenses that add up very, very quickly. How right. are you funding everything? That's a great question, and I'm happy to be an open book about it. It was really hard. Um, we bootstrapped Hari Mari ourselves for the first, for the two years of R and D and then the first year and a half of operating. And we were able to do that because we lived abroad and we, and we saved every single penny when we lived abroad uh. and didn't have a whole lot of expenses because it was basically a, a business trip, a very extended business trip. Right. So, uh, but it was hard. I mean, we had to make major adjustments and the way we lived and the way we spent and, um, it was a struggle. And so finally about a year and a half and after we started the business, we did our first round of family and friends and, and did a raise. And, um, it was hard. I look back on it on that time and I don't know how we did it. I don't know how we paid for everything we needed for our kids and I don't know how we paid <laughs> our mortgage, but we somehow did it. Yeah. Um, but it was tough. I, I mean, I, I can see the, the conundrum with a lot of entrepreneurs and, do I go to a bank and take out a loan or do I yeah. do a raise and sell equity in my company? And it's, those are hard decisions that every entrepreneur had to, has to face. Um, and we certainly did, but, it, and, and it was, but it was tough and we, we didn't even take a paycheck until the first, gosh, and everything Hari Mari was making for the first year and a half went straight back into the business right. and we were paying everyone else, but not paying ourselves. And again, I don't know how we, we got by. <laughs> yeah. How did the funding with friends and family go? Because I've heard some good stories with people in that experience, and I've heard some some tough stories. But how'd that go for you guys? Our the friends and family piece was great. In okay. fact, it was it for the most part everybody was here in Dallas, so that made it easy. Yeah, and they truly were they're they they truly are friends and supporters, and still are to this day. So we didn't have a bad taste in our mouth. In fact, when we had to go do a Series A raise. We were like, we didn't realize how hard it was because the friends and family came so easily. Um, but we, for the most part, had a really good experience with the friends and family race. Okay. And so then you did Series A Venture Capital mm -hmm. VC. Is that what you did? We didn't go the VC route. We oh. just kind of primarily went with high net worth individuals or family offices. Ah, okay. And so when did yeah. you guys wind up doing that? 
That was 2016, I believe. Okay, so you did the friends and family like maybe a year and a half after you had started, and then that mm-hmm. kickstarted you, and you got your feet on the ground for a little while, and mm-hmm. then and then what triggered the need for for more funding? People, we just needed Staff. people. Okay. Yes, the first raise was for inventory. Uh, we since have gotten terms with our factory, which has been huge for us because we aren't having to front and pay for everything up front. Yeah. So that that need went away, but then the next piece was Harimari is growing on average about a clip of 100% year over year. Wow. That's I know, it's amazing. Nuts. That's totally so nuts. It is. But with that comes a lot of struggles with yeah. needing people and need to help and um, take on the workload. And so that was 100% to hire some kick-ass folks. Excuse okay. my language. Oh, no, no, no. You're fine. You're good. Um, okay. So, so let's go back a little bit. Okay. So the funding stuff, understand how that all built. Um, so how, so you, you go into production with what one style for women's one style for men's. Correct. Okay. And then what are you thinking? I'm going to put this online and I'm going to sell it. Like what was your plan to like how to get this out to the people? Well, our original business plan was a direct-to-consumer approach, and this was another big takeaway from our focus groups, and I'm so thankful for it, is that when we were visiting with people, and this was also 10 years ago, keep in mind, So, but at that point, people's general sentiment was that they do not want to, and they won't, buy footwear from brands they aren't familiar with online. Mm-hmm. They want to see, touch, feel, and try on, Yeah, and so we had to pivot and kind of at the last minute, add wholesale to our business at a wholesale approach. And so um, that was hugely helpful because I think it would have been a struggle in the beginning had we just been direct to consumer. Yeah. So once we had that piece decided, uh, the flip-flops arrived and I was on the road for the better half of the next six months, getting it into stores. Yeah. Can I ask how much inventory you guys bought on that first round? We ordered 25,000 pairs of flip-flops. Oh, shit. Yes. <laughs> okay. Wow. I mean, that's I don't a know big, what, that again, was a number. I was, that like was I, not what I was expecting. Yeah. Like I said, <laughs> we had no idea what we were doing when we first started. We were had you know drank the Kool-Aid on this thinking that that would be, you know, and, and, and we actually sold most of it in okay. the beginning. So that okay. was great. A lot of, some of the pairs came back defective and we had to donate them. And that was a horrible, horrible experience. And they ended up at a black market, a flea market in LA. Oh no. And it was terrible, but we got through it and we were able to sell the remaining pairs. So we had, you know, some hiccups and some hurdles initially along the way, but generally speaking, um, you know, I think by the product arrived March 21st of 2012, and by the end of August, we had like 42 stores selling the brand. Wow. So we took that success and started and went to started going to trade shows. So we had some stores to mention and some sales to tout in those trade shows and just kind of plateaued from there. Okay. And so you literally were just driving, going to boutiques. Were you doing research and trying to set up appointments with the buyer first? Or like how cold of an approach was this? It was pretty cold because, you know, 
hey, I'm Lila with Harimari. Can I get an appointment? They're like, who are you and who is Harimari? <laughs> what is it so, you're selling? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I had my samples in my bag and I'd done my research in terms of what stores I wanted to be in. Uh-huh. But I knew I had tried to make appointments and I think I was laughed out of many phone calls. So yeah. I stopped trying to make appointments and I just show, walked, showed in, showed up. You did. And, um, basically harassed these poor people to carry the brand. <laughs> was that so. a, was that something that you're comfortable with or were you, did you like have to build up a thick skin to, to get through some of these situations? Well, back to the role reversal with Jeremy and I, I had done a lot of sales in my previous life Yeah, at, okay. In my previous position. So, and in, in fact, I was selling sponsorships for concert venues. So we're talking about high dollar amount deals and so to go from that to a $60 flip-flop was like, <laughs> to me, it was nothing. So yeah. I was, I wasn't, it was more so just not knowing the business. I knew I could walk into a store and hopefully get them to buy it. But like the bigger picture, that was a little bit daunting, but no, I, I, I was accustomed to sales and okay. I just felt comfortable with it. And I was just so passionate about it and I was so excited about it. I didn't even care yeah. if someone said no and I think I naturally have thick skin. You have to if you're in sales. I and, know. But I was so passionate about it. And I really, at that time, and I still do, just really believe in what we're doing. And so I didn't care that I might have been annoying people showing up without an appointment or that they were going to say no initially, but I'd get them the next year or the next season. Or, you know, it was just kind of the beginning of what we had to do to get it into retail. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of value in what you said about being really, really excited about your product is that you – Yes, you do have to sell. Like at the end of the day, sales is sales. But when you're so excited and passionate about your product, like that comes through and that makes you – it, you can just feel it in the way you talk about it and yeah. it just resonates with the person on the other side of the conversation. So that component is so, so, so valuable. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and even when we hire people here that handle sales for Harimari, that's – it's so key um, even for them, which is hard to do because they don't, you know, they don't obviously don't own the business, but, yeah. um, that's like selling 101 is passionate about what you're selling. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We'll get back to this episode in 20 seconds, but real quick, did you know that the SFD podcast is sponsored by you? We don't interrupt your listening experience with ads and instead rely on your support. There are three ways you can do that. One, tell a friend about the podcast. Two, sign up for the email list at soheidi.com slash email. That's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I dot com slash email. Three, write a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for supporting the SFD podcast. Now back to the episode. Okay, so you, I imagine you got a lot of no's, but you got a lot of yeses. You said 42 stores in Mm -hmm. like, what, like six months or so from March to Mm -hmm. August. Mm Mm-hmm. And then you thought, okay, now we go the next step because we have some leverage and we have some some proof and validation, and we can say, oh, this this store carries our brand. This store carries our brand, which gives you a sort of a leg up at trade shows. Um, yeah. So where did you guys start with the trade shows? The first trade show we did was we went go big or go home, right? We did outdoor retailer. And this, oh, you which did? Was yes. yes, I'm very aware of the trade show. Yeah, I've yes. done many times. Um, <laughs> this was when back when it was still in Salt Lake City. So. Yeah. Um, that was our very first trade show and that was so eye opening. <laughs> and then, um, we did, you know, we're being in Dallas, there's some big markets here in Dallas and we did those. And, um, and then I think our second big trade show was surf expo in Orlando. Okay. And how did the shows go for you? Did, was it successful? Did you start landing yeah. a bunch of new accounts? 
We did. It was really successful. Um, I feel it's funny because looking back over the years, wholesale up until probably last year has been the lion's share of our business. Ah. And um, yeah, I think the response was great. I mean, it was something new and fresh. A lot of the flip-flop brands have been around for a long time. So explaining what we were doing and how we were taking a different approach was really well received. Yeah. And of course there was a, I mean, there was a lot, don't get me wrong. There was a lot of no's. I mean, sure. it was, I mean, it was a hundred no's to every yes initially. And then that gets easier and easier as you go along. But, um, again, we were so passionate and so excited about it. I shouldn't even care if there was a negative response, you know, yeah. like next. <laughs> <laughs> and then you did get those people that like, they saw your vision and they got it and they, yeah. they saw, they understood the same gap in the market that you had identified. And they thought, yeah, this is a real thing. This is a real niche that needs to be filled and you guys are filling it. So let's do this. Yeah. And our first big break and it couldn't have been with a better retailer, uh, was Nordstrom. Wow. And they, I think the buyer at the time saw, was at a destination wedding and a guy was wearing a pair. And so that's how he was introduced to the brand. And they picked us up in a major way in 20, in 2014 and we shipped in 2015. So literally within two years of business, we got our first opportunity with Nordstrom. That's huge. I know. And I remember freaking out because it was an online test. And I was like, oh God, no one's going to buy it. Oh. I had heard of Hari Mari kind of going back to what we learned in our focus groups. They weren't going to be put them in, put it, putting them in the stores. No, it was an online test only. Ah. And so I was so nervous and we were so worried. And sure enough, fill-in orders came and additional fills and we were ecstatic. And then they turned around after our first season and put us in 30 doors. Oh, Wow. Yes, and then the year after that, nationwide. So that was huge for the wow. for Hari Hari, and was really our big break from a wholesale perspective. Um, within a year and a half of being in business, yeah, that's insane. I mean, these yeah. are you don't hear these stories very often. That's amazing. Yeah, and it came and so the the introduction came so sideways from the buyer at a wedding. Yeah, oh, and don't get me wrong, I was still reaching out to everybody. Okay, but it made it so much easier for us because. He had heard about the brand had already been validated to him in his mind at this wedding he was at. Not okay. Trying to tell him, hey, check out our brand, check out our brand. He was already familiar with it. But you had been pitching to him, and then it so happened that he was like, oh, yeah, I randomly saw these at a wedding. Yes. Okay, gotcha. So you were still doing the initial outreach to make that connection? Yes. Okay. Okay. And did any challenges or anything come up with production at this point? Because it sounds like you're starting to order more and more in larger quantities. I mean, when Nordstrom calls and says, hey, 30 doors, and then they call and say, hey, you know, did you say nationally or internationally? Nationally. Nationally. Yeah. Um, that starts to that, – that inventory number starts to grow. That production number starts to get big. Uh, how did that go with your factory? Well, we took a play out of um, took a page from Nike's playbook, and we from the get go for wholesale outside of our very first season got our we were on a pre book schedule. So we went around from June through August, collected orders for the following season to ship in January. So we in turn knew what we needed to produce at a minimum every year. Okay, and so that really helped us scale. Because we weren't having to use a crystal ball that doesn't exist to project 
to figure out how to forecast. Right. And so that getting what we needed produced wasn't a challenge. In the beginning, it was quality because our first factory, oh my gosh, 30%, and I I touched on it briefly, but 30% of our initial shipment was defective. Oh, it was 30%. It was a big chunk, maybe twenty wow. percent. But it was a, a big chunk. That's a big chunk because I, I mean, I know you said you did. You ordered what twenty five thousand? Yeah. And so I, I mean, some defects are expected, but twenty percent is yeah. very big, very so big. That was that was our that was our struggle was quality control. It okay. was not, hey, we need we have all these orders, we can't fill them. Uh-huh. It was, hey, we can fill them, but we're not going to fill them with the same factory because they're terrible. And so that was um, that was our initial issue with production, and I. I I I feel like I keep saying I feel very fortunate, but where we are now, I really do think is the best place for flip-flops. So we're in good hands. There were, there have been a couple issues over the year with late shipments because there was a strike at, you know, the ports in California and that set us back almost two months. And so that was a challenge, but production isn't a huge issue for us ever since we moved away from our original factory. Okay. That's amazing to hear. Yeah. Um, okay, so you get into Nordstrom's. It's insane. Uh, when do you guys decide to start doing some online DTC, direct-to-consumer? So we started our website the, the, the same day that we launched. So okay. we, were doing, we were doing both. So we've always had Harimari.com and Wholesale. Um, it's just Wholesale has, for the most part, been the lion's share of our business up until last year. Okay, so and 2000, last year's, 2018. Yeah, last okay. year was the first year that our web sales um, passed our wholesale numbers. Okay. And so what did you guys do? I mean, obviously you're trying to go grow wholesale and you're trying to go grow your online presence. What were you doing? And, and so you've outlined pretty clearly like how you were actually growing the wholesale side of things with mm-hmm. you know driving around and then the trade shows and then just doing a bunch of cold outreach. What were you guys doing strategically to grow the online and direct-to-consumer portion of the business? It was, it was twofold. The first was press. So when we first launched, we made the mistake of hiring a really expensive PR firm with a really big retainer and quickly learned that that wasn't something that we were open to because it just we just couldn't afford it. So we met with some friends that handle PR and learned the PR business and set up monthly, excuse me, semester long internships with all the local universities to have interns here helping us. And a large part of what our interns was, were doing and a large part of their responsibilities was press. Okay. So that was, that was part of it. And we've had some incredible publications feature Hari Mari Forbes, Entrepreneur, Outside Magazine, Oprah, Cosmo, the list goes on. And then the other side of it was Facebook. Um, Facebook's numbers in terms of advertising are down now. So we don't utilize Facebook as much if really any anymore. Mm -hmm. But years ago when we first started, my gosh, our ROI on Facebook in our in our peak season was five times what we spent. Yeah, it was a totally different game years ago. Yeah, it was. And so that was a big one. It, it may not have been our target demo always, you know, but it was pretty reliable in terms of um, what we could spend to know that, w- that we were going to get that back fivefold so it was safe. Yeah. You know? And then our first year out of the gates, Heidi, we also did – 200 events. 
Oh my gosh. I, I did not have a life. No, you um, didn't. <laughs> we did any grassroots events that we could get, get it, get our foot in the door. Like what sort of, give me, give, give some examples of what sort of things you were doing. Um, like if there were any neighborhood festivals or deep Ellum, which is an area of Dallas that we are, where we're headquartered, they would have music festivals or they would have art festivals or, you know, just beer festivals or anything that where the entry fee was nominal, we would go and we invested in a little Harimari tent and a table and a tablecloth. And we would go and we would talk, talk about the brand to anybody that would listen. Okay. And we did, we did a hundred events, if not two, I think it was a hundred or two, it was 200, 200 events our first year out of the gates. And, um, so total grassroots, like scrappy doing it ourselves in the beginning. Yeah. And at this point, was it just your, you and your husband, like you, you guys were physically doing all of this for the most part, us and interns. And then my brother, I have three brothers. My youngest brother was helping us for maybe the first eight months. Okay. Um, and then after he left, cause he went, went to nursing school, he's like, guys, I really need to go do what I studied to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, we started hiring people after that. Okay. So you're doing like all this legwork, just getting the name out there any way you can. I imagine some of the wholesale also helps with brand awareness and, you know, maybe they buy the second pair online because now they're comfortable. They know it's a great product. Um, and so you see the direct to consumer business building and building and building. And then finally it surpasses the wholesale. Yes. Okay. So, um, and you guys have done a lot of other stuff too. You, uh, it looks like you would do a lot of partnerships with other brands. Can you talk? I, based on what I see on your website, um, some of these projects that you guys launch. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you've done and how how you've built that aspect of the business and how it's helped you guys grow? Yes. So that's been that's another. It's been a leather larger catalyst for the brand, but we weren't able to attract any great partners until we got a little bit bigger. So it started yeah. probably three years, three years ago. Okay. And the first was with Nakona, uh, baseball gloves. They're out of Texas. They'd been our 85 year old brand. It was their first collaboration for footwear. Um, we basically used the leather that they use for their gloves on our flip flops. It's been really good. Great for Harimari. Our next big collaboration was with Peter Millar. Um, it's a premium men's brand. We are producing all their flip-flops. They're handling the distribution on it. And that's been great, you know, to open up the umbrella, so to speak, to introduce the brand to, you know, by partnering with other companies. Some smaller ways to do it on a smaller scale. A lot of social media giveaways, you know, connecting with other brands on Instagram and doing giveaways. And that was really helpful in the beginning when we didn't have a, didn't have a big budget or if any budget at all and we weren't large enough to attract um, another brand to collab with, but yeah, the collaboration part's been really fun. That's awesome. Um, so what, where are you guys at now in terms of the company size? It sounds like you got a pretty good base. And I know you said, I think it was around 2016 when you did your series a funding that you like, we need, you, you thought we just need to hire people. Um, yes. So what kind of people were you hiring and like, where are you guys at now in terms of the team structure? So we were hiring first and foremost was a, a new designer. 
um, Jeremy had been doing it most of it up, up until that point, And we were literally laughing cause we were like shrinking it and pinking it for women. And so we <laughs> found this amazing woman. Her name's Trisha Hegg. She used to be the VP of global product at both reef and Sanook. And, um, we met with her, fell in love with her and she's clearly wildly talented. And so she was our, and, and she has a counterpart. His name's Brian house and they're a duo and they're amazing and hiring. It was a no brainer. So that was a large chunk of what the raise was for. We also hired our CFO, which has been amazing. Not having to handle that anymore. Yeah. Um, and some, and some additional salespeople to, to ramp up. Okay. Um, and kind of rewinding a little bit, um, I'm curious about the logistics of inventory and distribution. Um, it just for some, something made me think back to the first twenty five thousand pair order. Like, where were you mm-hmm. storing this, and how were you managing like getting that stuff out the door? Were you just doing like out of your garage? Initially, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, yes, exactly. And then we got our first office. My dad and my uncle have a little warehouse space in West Dallas. Okay. And so it worked out perfect because there was an empty garage that we were able to rent right next door. And so, yes, we were handling it ourselves, UPS, USPS, FedEx showing up daily. We were filling the orders at that point. Um, and along with our interns and, um, we've since, we tried a 3PL. So we ran our original office in the design district for about two years and then moved over to where we are now, which is in deep Ellum. And we don't have a ton of warehouse space. So we tried a 3PL, a logistics company to handle our fulfillment Sorry, what's 3PL? Third-party logistics. Oh, I've never so heard that abbreviation before. They have, you know, obviously have warehouse, massive warehouses and ship for multiple brands. Right. And so we tried that, didn't have a good experience, brought it back in-house. Heidi, you would laugh if you saw our, our headquarters right now. We have five, <laughs> in addition to our warehouse, we have five crates filled to the brim with inventory. Yeah. Can you send me a picture? We can include it in the show notes. I would love to have a oh, visual. Yes, that's hilarious. I would love to. Okay. And so we get, you know, 10 shipments a year and just keep it keep it flowing. Okay. You know? And you guys and I've heard horror stories um from multiple people about I guess 3PL now that I know what it stands for. Um yeah. it's just tough. People want to bring yeah. it back in house. Yeah, it's um and same with us. We'd heard horrible stories. I don't know why we tried it, but um cuz we, we, we all did. think we're going to be able to do it better. <laughs> totally. And no, I mean there's something to be said about having access to your inventory to get it out as fast as you want it. Yeah. A, th- a 3PL has allotments and they'll, you know, depending upon how many brands they have, they're only allowed to de- dedicate a certain amount of their time to each brand. And, um, you know, so not only is it slower than it was when, when we, ha- when it is, when we were handling it and handling it now, but the accuracy level wasn't there. And there's something nice about if, a, a, a publication calls or a store calls and they're like, can you get this out immediately to be able to have access to your inventory is just key. And not relying on someone else because someone else is never going to care as much as you do to make it actually happen. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, so going back a little bit to the wholesale versus direct to consumer business model. Um, you said you started out with PR interns and you got a lot of great press and obviously that Mm -hmm. built you quite a bit of leverage to then, you know, kick off multiple other things, whether it be these brand partnerships with, 
um, big names, so on and so forth. Um, Facebook ads were working really well. It sounds like you guys aren't doing them anymore. So what have you done in the recent years, year two-ish, to continue building that direct-to-consumer channel of the business now that times have changed a little bit? Well, 30% of our online business are repeat customers, which Ah. is key. And so that's to us as they're, you know, they're coming back and they're continuously coming back and purchasing anything new we put out there. So that's awesome. But I think part of it is that we made intentionally our experience when someone buys something from harimari.com special. So we have really cool boxes and they get handwritten notes and there's extra swag thrown in and um, we just do a lot of things and take a lot of steps internally so that it is enticing for them to want to come back or they show their friends or they tell their friends. Um, whereas if you were to buy something from, you know, a larger consumer online, it's showing up in a plastic bag. Right. And so we, we spend a lot of money on that piece, um, so that the experience speaks for itself. So that's part of it. Um, but with the raise, I also forgot to mention, we hired a, a head of digital and he's awesome. His name is Nick Henderson. And so, um, he does a great job of, you know, displaying ads and certain places that are key that seem to resonate and to get those folks back onto or onto harimari.com for the first time. Okay. And I imagine with the 30% repeat, which is amazing, um, you guys run some type of email campaigns, newsletters, that sort of thing. Oh, for sure. We yeah. send out an e- we probably send out an email too frequently, but <laughs> yes, we try and stay in touch with our consumer and let them know what's going on with the brand and yeah. new product and yes, absolutely. Okay. Can you and I don't know how involved you are in that component, but can you talk a little bit about that because, you know, I think email marketing is is a big buzz right now. It's not going anywhere, right? It's the best way to right. talk directly to your consumer. Um, right. but I think where a lot of people get stuck is they're like well, what do I say? You know, cause you can't just, every email can't just be a sales email. Well, there are companies that do that. Um, but what are you guys doing within some of these campaigns? I mean, you said you email pretty frequently. Um, can you share what that looks like for your business? Well, I think if I were a newer business and looking back on what we could have done better, I would recommend, and we should have done this as well is get personal with your consumer, right? So if they don't have anything new to talk about or new to sell, talk, send out an email about the founder yeah. or, some, or someone that works there or have do something that makes the consumer feel like it's not just another product and do something in a way that makes them, makes your brand relatable. Um, I think that's valuable to do and we could certainly do a better job of it here too. Um, Jeremy and I usually kind of hide behind doors when cameras come out, but <laughs> But I think that would be valuable. Um, tell the story behind your brand. Tell why. Um, and gosh, giveaways are great. Yeah. You know, your customers always, that's always kind of fun to try and win something. So, um, you know, if you don't have anything new to talk about from a product perspective, get, have your customers or your email database get to know you a little bit. Yeah. Or maybe even share that picture of the five crates of flip-flops you have sitting in your office and say, exactly. hey, we pack and ship every order ourselves. Like from a consumer's perspective, that's really cool to know. Yeah. So I love yeah. that. Just sort of the behind the scenes stories and, and personalize yeah. it, right? There are yeah. real people behind this, but sometimes it feels, the experience can feel very transactional. Um, totally. So, so very cool. And then, um, 
So where are your where is your guys' focus right now? Are you continuing to push both wholesale and direct to consumer equally, or are you seeing that you know profit margins are better direct to consumer? You know maybe yes. there's there's it, it's one off orders, so there's different types of overhead and costs associated. Um, but are you continuing to build both, or what are you guys thinking right now? Well, we're definitely we'll always have wholesale. Okay. We have spent a, a large amount of time and investment into building our wholesale business. And that will never go away. Yeah. Um, I feel really so lucky that we have, I mean, gosh, we, we launched with J crew this year and wow. Zap, the Zappos team is incredible. And we launched with Neiman's two years ago and, um, West Marine. And we have such a beautiful list of stores that I would never want that to go away. And we'll always foster that. But yes, our big focus, especially now because retail is kind of in a strange space. Yeah. Um, when until that correction ends or whatever happens is going to happen, we're definitely putting all of our eggs into the, not all, but most of our eggs into the DTC basket and really focusing on our website and um, our online customers. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so cool. This, and you guys started in 2010 and it's 2000, it's November of 2019 that we're recording right now. Um, so like well, nine, we start, started in 2012, we did R and D. Oh, right. Okay. So two yeah. years, which is research. Yeah. So technically you launched, so I mean, seven years, this growth is crazy. Well, it is, but you're kind. We also have a long way to go, you know, <laughs> a really long way to go. I feel like nine people out of 10 have no idea who Hari Mari is and, um, no idea about our philanthropy and whatnot, but um, yeah. Yes, the growth has been wild and fun and exciting, but we still have a really long way to go. Yeah, talk a little bit more about the philanthropy now that you guys have like grown to such a big um, space. You give back to uh, childhood cancer. Is that what it is? Children's cancer. Yes. Yeah, so we call it Flops Fighting Cancer. Okay. We donate a percentage of our sales to kids who are battling pediatric cancer here in the U.S. Um, as I mentioned before, it is the most fatal disease of child all childhood diseases combined. And um, we're really proud of it. We go to, in addition to donating monetarily, which goes to, we pick select hospitals that take anybody. So the money that we donate is earmarked to pay down the bills of kids whose families can't afford it. Oh, cool. But in addition to that, we do what we call flop drops about four times a year with our partner hospitals where we go in and, you know, it's, it's a small token, but it's, you know, we really enjoy it selfishly and give flip-flops to the kids that are being treated in the oncology departments. And we just love it. It, it makes the redundancy of, of working anywhere, um, you know, and, and the day-to-day grind all worth it. Yeah. That's so cool. That's so cool. And it sounds like more than, you know, writing the check and sending it somewhere, which is of course great in its own right, but like physically actually getting involved and and being present in that space, I imagine creates such a cool experience for the people, for you guys, as well as the people on the other side. It's pretty, it's pretty grounding. Yeah. If you think you're stressed or upset about something and then you walk into that hospital and all, everything is just put into perspective. Yeah. Instantly. So That's I'm so cool. I'm very very thankful for our philanthropy and I just look forward to the day that we you know we're bigger and can do crazy cool stuff with it and yeah. really help more kids and you know it's awesome. Well, you are very quickly and and definitely on the right path to get there. So um and, and arguably, I, I will continue to say you've done so much already, so please do take some appreciation and, and compliments on where you have gotten in these seven years. It is, it is phenomenal, so congratulations oh, on that. 
Thanks. That's yeah, too kind. Yeah. Um, well, I'd love to wrap up. First of all, where can everybody find you online or, or wherever makes sense? Instagram, whatnot. Instagram at Harimari Shoes. Our website is harimari.com. And we're also on Facebook and Twitter as well with the same handle at Harimari Shoes. Okay. H-A-R-I-M-A-R-I. And we'll link to all that in the show notes. And um, I will end with the last question I ask everybody at the end of the interview, and that is, what is one thing people never ask you about working in the fashion industry that you wish they would? Oh, goodness. Uh, Do you enjoy it? Yeah. That's so silly. No, it's not. And so (laughs) rudimentary, but, um, and yes, I do. I love it. Yeah. What do you love so much about it? I just love people. I love meeting people. I enjoy, you know, I, I get to meet people at trade shows and go and in meetings for stores. And, um, I think it's fun. It's also, okay, maybe I should have answered it this way. It is so cool. And I still, to this day, almost eight years in, get so tickled when I see somebody wearing a pair of Hari Maris. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It makes my day. Totally. I know the feeling. Yeah. It never gets old. Yeah, it's so cool. So maybe that that's probably a better answer and that's I'll go with that. And that that goes back to yes, I do still enjoy it. You still get like this amazing feeling from seeing somebody wearing your product out in public. Yeah, for sure. So cool. So cool. Well, thank you so much for chatting, Lila, and sharing everything, your successes, some of your mistakes and lessons. I know there's a lot of great takeaways for everybody out there listening. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate each and every one of you tuning in and taking a listen to these interviews. It means so much to the podcast. Thank you again, Lila, for the awesome interview. It was great to hear your story. And I also want to give a big shout out to two people behind the scenes, my husband, Mark, who handles all of the tech and editing and makes the show possible, as well as my right-hand woman, Tara, who does so much that you don't see. She makes sure the podcast episodes get scheduled and out to you. She coordinates the guest. So many little moving pieces and parts behind a podcast that you have no idea exist until you actually make one. And it's amazing it's fun to put together, but there it, it takes a little teeny army to make this happen. So thank you, Mark and Tara, for all your help and support on this. Um, as a quick reminder, SFD is way more than just a podcast. And to get access to my best free resources to help you get ahead in the fashion industry, head on over to soheidi.com slash email. It's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I.com slash email to get access to all of that. If you'd rather catch up with me on Instagram, I do hang out there a little bit. You can follow me at soheidi. And as always, if you did enjoy this episode or you enjoy other episodes of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast, a write-up and rating on iTunes does mean the world to us. So thank you so much for doing that. As always, you can scroll down to check out the show notes wherever you're listening. Thanks so much again, and I will talk to you in the next Successful Fashion Designer Podcast episode.